two broken vertebrae, six broken ribs, the collapsed lung. Then this horse came again and just latched onto him around near his flank and he freaked out. Two point two, have you responded to one? We have a lady unconscious. Topic approach one three two zero. Hi, I'm Landa Mitchell from the Royal Flying Doctor Service, and this is a podcast series about mateship, about life in the bush, and about the role that the Royal Flying Doctor Service plays in servicing rural communities. This is the Flying Doctor Podcast. I vividly remember the hoof, his white hoof, coming down at me. I was flung through the air like a rag doll, went down and he came down on top of me again, and the same thing happened. This podcast is about a really scary horse accident and I was initially going to start with the fact that there are some 400,000 Aussies that love, own and ride horses and, and then talk about the risks of horse accidents. But in truth, this interview is about more than horses and a fall. Rachel Gooch is a wonderful woman with one of the largest hearts I've come across. She and her husband Rob have fostered children for many years. Making a difference in children's lives was something that appealed to both of them. And from 2008 until just a few years ago, they opened their hearts and their home to foster many children. Rachel brought stability and love to children that came in her door, and she shared her large menagerie and her outdoor lifestyle with these kids, something that would change their lives forever. Rachel's been riding horses for many years, in fact, since she was a young girl, and she owns her own horses and she knows her stuff. She, in her own words, has come off several times, as any long-term rider has, but when she was thrown from a horse a few years back, she found herself in a life-or-death situation. G'day, Rachel. Hey, how are you going? I'm good. Now, before we talk about horses... Tell me a little bit more about fostering. When did you and Rob decide to get involved? Uh, That was about 2008. Um, We'd been through an IVF journey. So I suppose with Rob and I, I was 26 when I met him. He was 39, so a little bit of an age difference there. Um, He's got three children of his own who were older when we met. Um, And, of course, we married and and wanted children of our own as well. But... um, for whatever reason, that wasn't meant to be. So we went through IVF and that was unsuccessful also. Um, So then we looked into fostering and that's how we began. Wow. Well, communities, in my view, Mm -hmm. communities are only as valuable as the people that make them up. And in rural and remote communities, this is um, deeply understood. If there's a fire, it's the local volunteers that will come to save your house. If a family is suffering from financial or emotional trauma, it's the locals that have to rally around and provide support. Mm -hmm. So I put the fostering that you and Rob have been engaged in in the same category. Uh, You're doing an amazing service for those individual children. And at the same time, you're rewarded and you're supporting the broader community as well as those families that those children have come from. Because if it wasn't for big-hearted people like you and Rob, then those kids would really be up a creek with no paddle. <laughs> um, yes. So who, who was your first foster child and how long were they with you? So my first foster child was um, a young boy by the name of Zach. Um, I actually just bumped into him probably about two months ago. So, yeah, Zach was with us for a couple of years. Um 
and then he ended up going back to mum, which was lovely. So it's good when they go home. Um, and I bumped into him and mum at Officeworks recently here in town. So, yeah, it was great. Great to see him. He looks exactly the same. So, and he, first question he asked me was, do you still have the fence up that I helped paint with Rob? And yes. Oh, that's great. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So he hasn't changed. Um, from there we had um, a few others um, after after Zach. So um, we had a beautiful um, Indigenous girl um, I used to call my little butterfly, Sheree. Uh, she was lovely. Um, then we had a couple of sibling sets after that, a brother and sister who went home to mum and um, two other girls who went home to mum also. And then we had three boys after that, and the boys used to ride with us, actually. So, yeah, it was lovely. That's fabulous. Can you tell me a little bit about your home with Rob and what foster kids experience when they come to live with you? Probably first and foremost, uh, they experience the animals. <laughs> it's pretty much the first thing they, they run into once they open the gate. Um, so we've got a couple of, of dogs. We've had dogs ever since we've been married, so... Um, Back then we had Missy and Rocky um, and they were a big part of the children's lives really. They um, used to help settle them, go to bed with them. Um, so they were very much a big part of part of their life, sleeping with them and growing with them um, and going through a lot of experiences with them. And the dogs were quite intuitive. They would often pick up if the kids were down and whatnot and go and sit with them. So, yeah, it was part of the therapy, I feel. Um, then we've also... we. Well, we've always had birds, so we've got um, uh, what do we have back then, I think. When we first began, we still had our galahs. We've got Gordon the galah. Um, we've got some ringnecks, Indian ringnecks, um, some Alexandrine parrots. Um, and then later on, when we had the three boys, we also got the chickens. So, yeah, they've grown up with the, with the chickens, the birds, all on a residential block, mind you, in in our local area, and then the horses, which are set away from home. So, yeah. What was the longest um, time frame that you ever had a, a foster child for? Um, well, with fostering, you do get to choose. So you can have, like, respite short-term, long-term. Um, we did go for long-term children, hoping that we would have them the whole way through. Um, but usually if things are going really well and um, their home has settled and they can be returned home, then obviously that's the best outcome. Um, so I think about the longest was probably two and a half years, three years, three years with the boys, I think. Wow. What did you find most challenging about fostering? Uh, there's quite a few challenges. <laughs> um, I think in saying that the challenges are minimal compared to the rewards, but uh, probably having a lot of services engaged. So time management, when you have um, multiple servicing, services engaged with the foster kids. So if they've got to go to counselling and then they've got contact visits and they've got everything else that they need to do or medical visits on top of that, that um, can be a little bit challenging just to manage the time, especially if there's different uh, sibling sets. So, you know, if the kids don't want to go to whatever else somebody else is doing or if it's a parental contact and you need to um, split. So Rob might need to stay at home with, with one or two and then I have to take the others. Yeah, that sort of thing. It's just a lot of planning, really, but it all works out. Right. And you obviously found fostering children to be fulfilling. Can you tell me about that? Yeah, I think um, when I first moved up here, I started in daycare. So it sort of stemmed from there. Like it was nice to be around the kids all day long. And I suppose when I got home, it was quiet. So <laughs> I figured um, we're going to fostering that way. And I, I think for me, it's more around... 
I don't know. It's it, it was something that we thought long and hard about. We went um, and did a course. We looked into adopt, adoption first and then we went into to fostering. We did the foster care course here with Anglicare. And um, from there, yeah, things just sort of progressed. I suppose it sort of went around in that cycle. Yeah. That's fabulous. I, As my children um, are getting to the age of um, high school, college, and I, I look forward and I say, oh, gosh, I'm going to be an empty nester shortly. And I think, oh, maybe I should do some fostering. So I think you might be my role model. <laughs> yeah. It's nice. Those one-on-one moments that you have with the kids is probably one of the most important. Um, I can recall a time in the pool. Um, we'd all been swimming for the day because it's quite warm up here and um, Sheree was said to me, can you hold me like you did in the pool? And I said, what do you mean? And she laid on her back and I was actually just had her around the shoulders and I was just slowly just turning around in the pool. So she just had the water lapping over her and and she said, I really like that. It was really nice and calm and calming. So little things like that make it worthwhile. Building cubbies, always a favourite. Um, going for bushwalks, horse rides, everything. So there's a lot of that one-on-one time that makes it more purposeful than anything. Yeah. Now tell me a bit more about your horses. You've been a horse person a long time? Oh, yes. I think I started nagging mum for a pony when I was about, I think I was about nine when I started nagging. But we'd been riding before that. I used to ride with mum years and years ago. I think I was about three, she said, when I first started. And my uncle used to have, um, used to bring Brumbies over from South Australia. And um, he'd throw me up. He'd do a little bit of work with them and then he'd throw me up and if I came down, you know, then started bucking, carrying on, and I came off, he'd be like, okay, that one's not quite ready. And uh, you, say, you were the know, test that's case. That's enough. Yeah. <laughs> Crash test on me. And mum's like, leave her alone. That's enough. That's enough. And he'd be like, oh, she's good for a couple more. And back up I'd go. And yeah, I never said no. So even if the helmet flew off, I'd, I'd just be like, no, back up, back up. So yeah. How many horses do you own now? Oh my. Okay. So. Thanks to Facebook and getting on all those famous sites where you need to save something one day. Um, I was up to eight. Um, sadly, the horse that I actually had the accident on, he passed away about three weeks ago. So, yeah. it's um, My condolences. Yeah, so. it was very, very sad. Um, not a great weekend for me. Um, but, yeah, he's uh, so he was about 17, 18 we worked out. We're not quite sure what happened. Can you tell me about that day of the accident a few years ago? Uh, who was with you and what sort of day was it like? It was actually a long weekend. It was the Queen's birthday long weekend in June, when it was in June. Um, so many, many, oh, it's probably 2011 now. That particular day as we, we set off, we just got through the gate and we're sitting off, sitting off down along the fence line and um, Renee was in front on chase and I was just slowly coming up behind on splash and the four horses came up from the bottom of the hill and, and got somewhat close to us. Um, and I actually prompted Renee. I said, just just watch out. You know, these guys are coming up. She's like, yep, yep. And I said, so make sure you get yourself out. She's like, yep, yep. And because um, I was so focused on her, I, I didn't actually see um, a couple of them come up behind me. And I thought, oh, well, we're all good. They'll just follow on behind or something like that, like they do. And um, one of them lashed out at, at my horse um, and he freaked out, basically. He um, sort of leapt forward and I was fine with that. And I was up against the fence. Um, so I just, you know, got him to move forward a little bit more. And then Renee, I said to her, you need to move forward so I can get out sort of thing. 
Um, and she got chased to move forward and then this horse lunged at him again and Spice just panicked, um, didn't feel he had enough space and just started bucking flat out. Um, with that, of course, I sat, sat him, I suppose, for about two or three bucks, put my hand down on his shoulder and he stopped and then this horse came again and just latched onto him around near his flank um, and he freaked out and just went into a full pelt buck and that's when I was flung off. Um Wow. Yeah. Was was the horse that was behind, was that horse actually nipping and biting yeah. Splash? Yeah. So he was just lunging at him, just, just connecting, mouth open. Yeah. Um, I could actually, I, I still, I can, it's, I don't know how, how to describe it really. I could, I could actually feel it. So I could feel him hitting him with his open mouth. Um, and then just Splash just started bucking flat out. And of course, when he's, but it created a little bit of space, which what he was looking for, but it flung me off um, and he came down on top of me. So each time he was bucking, his back legs were coming down on my chest. Um, so he landed on you several times, yeah. not just, it wasn't just that you were thrown from the horse, but the horse actually landed on you yeah. several times while he was freaking out. Yeah, the back feet straight down on me. Um, I do remember a hoof coming down across my face. Um and I do have, I have a piercing just under my lip um, and he scuffed that and ripped that out um, and I had a cut chin, cut under my chin, um, but I, I vividly remember the hoof, his white hoof coming down at me. Um, I don't remember feeling the pain of him landing on me, but Renee's words were I was flung through the air like a rag doll, went down and he came down on top of me again and the same thing happened. So, yeah, until wow, yeah, until there was enough space created by everybody and, um, yeah, and then Renee jumped off and ran over in a mad panic and um, I was just sort of there left wondering what happened. Yeah. Well, is Splash a really big horse? Like what size is Splash or was Splash, unfortunately, since his past? Yeah, yeah. So he was 14.3 hands high, so he was about a medium size, but he was a chunky monkey. Um yeah, he probably would have been just under a ton. Wow. Okay. So Renee runs over to you and you're lying on the grass and you're still conscious. What I wish it was grass. <laughs> it was hard rock. It was hard rock. <laughs> I was thinking I, I was, was thinking grass. of one of my paddocks, which at the moment <laughs> are filled with grass. But okay, oh, so so lands on you're lying on the rock and or on the very hard ground and Renee runs over and what happened then? Like were you were you able to move at all or were you, like, what state were you in? I can't even imagine it. Uh, there was a short panic because I couldn't breathe. Um, so I worked out either I had a punctured lung or a collapsed lung. Um, that did turn out to be a collapsed lung. So I, I sat up as best I could, felt the pain, felt the shortness of breath, did everything I possibly could to just try and regulate my breathing. Um, Renee was screaming, what do I do? What do I do? Who do I call? Who do I call? Um, and then she's like, do you want the ambulance or do you want Rob? Like, who do I call? And I said, can you please call the ambulance? Like, and I was trying to breathe. So I suppose my, my biggest struggle was I had my eyes closed, just trying to regulate my breathing. And I was like, Rob, Rob, uh, ambulance, Rob, no, and I just keep repeating myself um, and she's like, radio, ambulance, and then Rob, and I'm like, thumbs up, yes, do that. Um, 
So she got through the fence and then jumped back through the fence and looked at me and said, what's the address? (laughs) I'm like, we come here every single day for about a year and you don't know the address. Um, So I'm like, letterbox, letterbox, just just go to the letterbox. Um, So, yeah, it was – and she was more worried about because I had blood gushing from my chin where my chin had been split. Um, so she went and got a rag and, and was holding that. It was very, she was very concerned with the blood, obviously, because that was something she could see. She had no idea what was going on inside. Um, so yeah, I just said, you know, like, get on it. Like I was sort of had my thumb on my finger as if, you know, text, text, start calling, <laughs> call someone now. Um, so yeah, she, she went and did that. And, uh, the, I, I basically was dragging myself back towards the fence. So the fence, just to give you some, um, idea of what it all looked like. So I'm on hard ground with some protruding rocks. Um, Central Queensland's quite, it was very bushy where we are, so just bush everywhere. She'd moved all the horses back. Splash was just standing in the bushes looking at me as if, oh, my God, what's happened? All the other horses have been moved on. Um, the fence was actually out of, it's um, like a tight um, wire, but not barbed wire or anything like that. So there was just three strands of that very thick, sort of uh, cable um so I'd was barely moved my legs um and I was just trying to push where I could but and move my hands I couldn't have Renee move me it was too painful she did try to link her arms under my arms and move me backwards um but that was extremely painful I cried out um so I said I'll do it myself and just kept pushing towards the fence once I got to under the fence I just flung my arms over the cable um, just so I could sit myself upright a little bit and get a bit more air into the one lung that I had functioning. Um, and then, yeah, she, she called the ambulance. I could vaguely hear the sirens in the background. Um, and I thought, I thought, well, this will actually be okay because it was being a long weekend. We have a um, fishing competition here called Hookup, and that was um, quite local to us so it was only over the bridge at Boyne Island and I thought well they'll get here fast because there's always an ambulance there that was exactly right the ambulance did come quite quickly um unfortunately it was the wrong ambulance what do you Um, what do you mean the wrong ambulance apparently when they got there they had a look at me and said that they didn't have the right gear on board to be able to look after me um, or even transport me so they had to call for the second ambulance which came from Calliope which took a little while so, yeah, that was, um, it felt like forever. And then when the second ambulance um, came, they got me on board. That was extremely painful moving me. As I mentioned earlier, this podcast has been made possible with the support of Isuzu Ute Australia. Having reliable vehicles is imperative in the harsh Australian outback, and Isuzu have provided D-Max utes and MUX SUVs to pull seven large RFDS flight simulators as they engage in school, community and field day activities for the Royal Flying Doctor Service. These simulators are full-size planes, minus the wings, and the Isuzu D-Max and MUX vehicles are a perfect match for the long-distance heavy towing demands of these RFDS simulators right across Australia. So keep an eye out for them as they travel around each state, and we would love to see photos and locations on our Flying Doctor podcast community Facebook page when you see them.
where were you injured? Obviously, you had a collapsed lung and you had this mm-hmm. broken uh, chin, which was bleeding. And uh, But where else was the pain that you were experiencing? The pain was my ribs um, more than anything. So I had two broken vertebrae or fractured vertebrae, uh, six broken ribs, the collapsed lung, and just the split across the chin. Um, so I thought my my face or my um, cheeks were broken because my jaw was extremely sore and painful too. I kept pointing to that and, yeah, they were like, no, no, no. That it was My ribs were just – I was collapsed down on my right side. Um, yeah, just felt very, very, um, I suppose, uh, what's the word? I felt like a floppy doll. Yeah. Right. Yeah. And, and the broken vertebrae, I mean, is that um, – behind the ribs is that why yeah did, did the horse the basically the horse's hooves landed on you and went right through your ribs and broke your back as well yeah there was a, is that right I'm not sure exactly how it happened but I'd say it was from the compression of him coming down on top of me yeah yeah so there's still reminders <laughs> the ribs are still um they still pop now so if I lay on my back straight and go to get up they or even breathe they pop 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 Pop, 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 So, yeah, it's a constant reminder. So what did they tell you about your condition? Did, were they able to say you appear to have broken this and that or were they really not sure until they got you to the hospital to be further checked out? Yeah, they didn't say too much um, on the drive-in. It was more just trying to keep me calm and stable. Uh, when we got to the hospital, there was just multiple people around me. Um, I was sort of like, okay, it's very real now. Um, possibly a little bit of shock. I felt then I was starting to get cold. I was starting to get worried. Um, hubby was there then too and came up. They started just cutting my clothes off me. Um, the doctors were unsure. They were discussing. I could hear them discussing just behind my head. You know, where do we where do we send her? You know, do you think Rocky will cope with her? You know, we can't cope with her here. We need maybe Rockhampton. Let's ring Rockhampton. And I was like, oh god, okay. They don't even know what they're doing. <laughs> where am I going? <laughs> um, so, yeah, I sort of I, I reached out and, and grabbed Harvey's hand and he held my hand and he's like, it'll be all right. And yeah, um, not what he told me later on, but he was very reassuring at the time. <laughs> so, yeah. So when when did they decide they needed to send you elsewhere? Um, they probably, it seemed, again, it seemed like forever. Um, had a nurse, you know, them all putting drips and things inside me every place possible. Um but, yeah, it was probably within, I'd say, well, it felt to me like about 15 minutes they made a decision and said, righty we're going to knock you out. Um, you most likely will wake up in Brisbane. I went, okay, good to know. So, yeah. so they put you into an induced coma? Is that what they yeah, did? Yeah, 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 that's exactly it. Wow. So what were you told happened afterwards? Because uh, obviously you won't have much memory of that flight, but mm-hmm. what were you told happened afterwards? Um, so when I did wake up in ICU, I had a tube down my throat, um, which was very uncomfortable. Once we got that out, um, as you can well imagine, there was a multitude of questions flying out of my mouth. Um, so they told me that I'd, I'd been transported here. Um, and I asked how, I said, was it a helicopter? Did I come by helicopter? And they're like, no, it was the Royal Flying Doctor Service. And I'm like, oh my God, really? I thought they only did like outback stuff. So I had no idea. I'm like, where did they land? Don't they have a big plane? Did I come on a big plane? 
Um, and they said, yeah, yeah, you came with another guy who had a motorbike accident. And I'm like, oh, okay. So, yeah. That's, um, to me, I thought, oh, well, I probably just got flown down by a helicopter because we have a, a, a helicopter service here apparently that that um, rescues people. So I forget it must have been them, but no, they brought out the big guns. So, yeah. And when you were in ICU, um, were you, did you have to undergo surgery and so forth for yeah for your injuries? Yeah, so they had to reinflate my lung. Um, and apparently there was a debate going on about my ribs, whether to plate them or just leave them. Um, and one of the doctors figured I was fit enough for them to, to just leave them. So, yeah, they said they'll just mend on their own. But, yeah, I um, had quite the debate leaving the hospital because I wanted to fly back um, and they wouldn't let me fly um, because of the injury. So, and I said, well, you flew me down. And I said, yeah, well, that was different. <laughs> so <laughs> lost. You had supervision yeah, then. Yeah, lost that argument. <laughs> so were you in ICU for a long time in Brisbane? Um, I th- this is sort of the part that, that gets foggy for me. Um, I thought I sort of woke up as soon as I landed there. That's what it felt like to me. But I think I was in there for about four days um, all up. I do remember people coming and going around me, um, I think. Oh, well, my mum and stepfather did visit. It seems like a dream, but mum said, no, we definitely did. It wasn't a dream. Um so, yeah, and I had a very lovely nurse when um, when I first woke or before I woke up, I think before I was fully conscious. Um, I think she might have been trying to wake me up or I possibly was stirring. I'm not sure she was trying to tell me about her baby and showing me pictures, but I can't remember opening my eyes, but she was telling me all about mm-hmm. it. Um, yeah, so they were really good. They, they looked after me well. How do they fix a broken back? Like what, what, do, you, what do the doctors do? Um, well, it's funny, I didn't even know really about the vertebrae until I was coming out of ICU to be moved to wards and they were setting me up for a shower and I was in a wheelchair and I'm like, do I have stitches in my back? And he's like, no, and I said, I can feel something in the middle of my back. And he said, oh, you've got two fractured vertebrae. He said, so that would be, I said, it feels like really sharp, like sharp little pinches. And he said, yeah, he said, they'll, they'll mend over time. So basically all the injuries I got just had to repair themselves. Well, wow. Yeah, yeah. So they sent you home eventually, I presume. Was How long did they keep you in hospital for? I uh, went down to the wards for a week after that, so um, just had to undergo a little bit of um, observation, more so from the physios and whatnot, just to make sure that I was going to be able to up and walking, getting those ribs sorted, getting my breathing. The breathing was probably the biggest thing, being able to get that back and making sure that I had good lung capacity and I was going to um, get that back. Um, because I think there might have been, when I first woke up, I was guarding things, so I didn't want to expand my ribs. I definitely didn't want to sneeze with six broken ribs. Didn't want to cough. Or laugh. Yeah, laugh, cough, sneeze, any of those were out. Um, so I was taking I've had breaks. broken ribs before. Yeah. Oh, it's painful. It is painful. <laughs> oh, it's horrible, absolutely horrible. I would not wish it upon anyone. So, yeah, I was taking these short, sharp little breaths all the time, um, protecting myself, so he said, no, no, we're back to breathing normally. And I'm like, well, you can. So <laughs> whatever, mate, not happening here. Um, but, yeah, so it was just a week of, of getting that and getting out of bed and trying to walk, um, shower myself and things again. So, yeah. You must have been really black and blue, like serious bruising. Did you, you know, do every colour of the rainbow as your body recovered from being stomped on? Yeah, probably not my finest moment. I definitely wouldn't have gone out. Um looking like that but yeah 
It was it was pretty hardcore. Um, I was starting to wonder if I was ever going going to be normal again. I suppose being able to ride again, um, stuff like that, just just because of the way it looked, and it, I sort of slumped still on that right side where the ribs were, all busted up. So um, yeah, it's it, it was quite a good break. They were front and back, not just like the front of the rib. There was yeah, front and back damage. So um, yeah, it wasn't appealing. So that's actually, rather than saying I had six ribs break, it's actually 12 ribs, you know, when you count it up that way. Yeah, that's, there's a bit of damage done. <laughs> yeah. Holy moly. So how are you today? Like that's some years ago now, mm-hmm. but how are you in pain on a daily basis these days or does it, has that accident, you know, created ongoing physical issues for you? No, no, I'm, I'm pretty good. I think it took me a long time to get the breathing back on board. That was probably something I really had to focus on more than anything, um, probably more so on my part. It took me over three months to get back to work. Um, that was a very slow process because at the time I was working in residential care, so I was working with kids with complex to challenging behaviours, um, and that's a 24-7 house um, that I was running there. So I couldn't, because the children could be volatile um, and could be hands-on, I couldn't just walk back into work with six broken ribs. Um, yeah, but I had a very good supportive uh, employer at the time and they did a very, um, you know, slow work, back-to-work sort of process um, to be sure that I was going to be okay. So, yeah, it's not like I could lock myself even in the office in the house uh, because that triggers the children. <laughs> so, yeah, it was – and they want to run up and hug you, you know. They're like, is she okay? And Because they were all worried, of course, too. So, yeah, it was pretty um, pretty intense. I was lucky at the time because I didn't actually – I don't think I had foster kids at the time. We were taking a break. Um, we just had two transition, so we were okay. And I thought, oh, this is all right. But then I had the kids from the house wanting to know what was going on all the time. So, yeah. But it, it did take over three months and even then my confidence was a little shot. I wasn't sure what that was going to look like for me. Yeah. Yeah. And you're still riding. You, you mentioned at the very beginning that you haven't done a lot of riding in the last couple of years. Life's sort of gotten in the way. Mm-hmm. But has this accident prevented you from riding horses? Did you, you know, do the proverbial and get back on that horse? Oh, damn right I did. Um, I wanted to get back on Splash, but unfortunately um, other people seem to have a lot more um, I suppose mental psychological damage <laughs> from from seeing me. Renee just said, "Don't you ever get back on that horse?" Um, yeah, so she said she had nightmares about it. She was quite um, really upset at just seeing what she saw. She said, "Yeah, it just did not sit well at all." Um, so yeah, and Reg, whose property it was, he's like, nope, you're not allowed back on that horse. He wanted him off to the meatworks. And I said, well, that's not going to happen. You've got more of a chance of going there before he does. Um, so yeah, I, I kept him all of this time, you know, because it, it wasn't his fault. You know, he's just, yeah, it wasn't his fault. He was under attack. Was, I mean, I, yeah. I suspect if I was Splash, I would have done the same thing. Well, that's it. You've got to make space somehow. So he just kicked up a fuss and yeah, I just yeah. couldn't stay with the ride. So, Rachel, you're continuing your continued passion of supporting the community and you're now working as a practice manager of the local health community service. Could you tell me a little bit about that? Yeah, sure. So I'm practice manager here at Bridges Health and Community Care. So we're a mental health service and we also do um, NDIS support coordination and recovery coaching. So I've been here since November last year. 
Um, and I'm actually a dual role now, so I do the support coordination and the practice managing here. So, yeah, it's it's great. Small little team and absolutely delightful. And before that, I was, I suppose, back with, um, I had been with a company called Real Support, working with um, children in care again. So, yeah, kids, kids and community have always been the passion and st- stuck with it, still here. Yeah. Yeah, well... Gladstone has a population of about 33,000, mm-hmm. which puts it on a parity with places like Kalgoorlie, Mount Gambia, Alice Springs and Dubbo, mm-hmm. um, and half the size of places like Albury and Launceston. Mm-hmm. Um, does the size of Gladstone when it comes to delivery of healthcare, I mean, in your case, in mental health services, does it present challenges? Oh, massive challenges. Massive challenges. Yeah, so I don't think it's just even in the mental health side of things. I would say it's it's also straight across the board. Um, here, I would say years ago, even prior to my accident, we were struggling here in Gladstone for good um, health services and allied health. At the moment, as I mentioned, I was support, I'm a support coordinator. We cannot get access to... Um, OTs, physios, speeches, across the board, any allied health. Um, And then when you're looking at mental health, that's, yeah, our local community mental health um, is already overrun. Um, The wait lists are long and the amount of support is is just not there. Um, And I know that when I went in with my accident, even the first thing the surgeon said to me in Brisbane was that he goes, you've got two um, cuts under your, just under your armpits. And I said, oh, okay, did I have tubing? And he said, yes, there was tubing inserted from Gladstone Hospital, but I'm not sure where it was going or what it was there for. So <laughs> our services, yeah, have been ho-hum. Now if you break an arm, you have to go to Rockhampton, which is an hour and a half away from here. Um, even maternity, everything, it's just, yeah, we need help. We need help. Mm. You know, I I worry sometimes because areas that are rural and remote in Australia already struggle with getting health service access that, you know, people in the cities sort of take for granted. Um, but with this whole global pandemic ongoing and continuing to roll out and presenting its challenges, we now have even worse backlogs because people that would normally be doing preventative type, whether it's primary healthcare or mental health services or whatever, are not doing that because of either lockdowns or or just simply saying, well, I'm only going to go where I have to go and I'm going to restrict my movement. And as a consequence, um, you know, we're now at the RFDS starting to see more acute presentations, meaning things are escalating to an emergency status, whereas they should have been caught earlier. And so we've got a bit of a backlog now that's starting to build, which I think uh, we're already talking about. It's probably going to take us some years to catch up on that. So Gladstone's just one of so many places around the country where I think we just have to get smarter and figure out how we can tackle these challenges of health service provision, make sure that everybody gets what they need when they need it. For sure. Yeah. yeah, totally agree. I think ours is more on the funding side. We haven't been so affected by COVID or, or anything like that up here. Um, we've had one lockdown, I think, um, which was very short. But it's more, to me, it feels like a third world country. It's, we just don't have what we need on a daily basis. We don't. Um, and we see that with, it was a much smaller population when we first came up with. We've been up here since 2004. 
um, but watching the town grow, but the services not grow with it is the frustrating part. It's a common problem. Mm -hmm. Thank you, Rachel. More than welcome. Thank you. The Flying Doctor podcast was presented by me, Lana Mitchell. If you enjoyed this podcast, please share it with someone who you think will love it too. Thank you for listening to the Flying Doctor podcast. Before I head off, I just want to thank one last time our sponsor and major national partner, Isuzu Ute Australia. Isuzu is committed to supporting the communities in which the RFDS operates, and this podcast would not be possible without their support. To learn more, search Isuzu Ute online.